How long will the pain last? A poem by uh, Megan Duggan. How long will the pain last? A broken-hearted mourner asked me. All the rest of your life, I have to answer truthfully. We never quite forget. No matter how many years pass, we remember. The loss of a loved one is like a major operation. Part of us is removed and we have a scar for the rest of our lives. As the years go by, we manage. There are things to do, people to care for, tasks that call for full attention. But the pain is still there, not far below the surface. We see a face that looks familiar, hear a voice that echoes, see a photograph in someone's album, see a landscape that once we saw together, and it seems as though a knife were in their wound again. But not so painfully, and mixed with joy too. Because remembering a happy time is not all sorrow, it brings happiness with it. How long will the pain last all the rest of your life? But the things to remember is that not only will the pain not only the pain will last, but the blessed memories as well. Tears are proof of life. The more love, the more tears. If this be true, then how could we ever ask that pain cease altogether? For then the memory of love would go with it. The pain of grief is the price we pay for love. We don't have to be alive very long in this world to be aware of the fact that we do not live in the Garden of Eden. We don't have to be on this planet for very long at all to realize that uh, this life is filled with pain. This life is filled with hardship. And this life is filled with tears. Although that shouldn't really surprise us, should it? The Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ has paid the price for sins. Jesus Christ has redeemed us to God. But the problem of sin lives on in the world. And we live in a world aching under the pain of sin. The Apostle Paul, when he writes in Romans, says that all of creation is groaning under this weight, howled in bondage to decay, awaiting for God's children to be revealed in the final day. So it shouldn't surprise us, should it, 
when the effects of the sin in the world that we live cause pain in our lives? Some of the words in this poem here by uh, Megan Duggan are, are, are very nice. And I'm sure there's, there's aspects of that poem that, that those of you who have lost someone dear to you will know full well. The way that she describes the loss of a dear loved one as, as having surgery done where a piece of you is removed and will always be missing. How she describes the, the, the things that trigger memories, bringing back bits of grief, bits of pain. But is that all there is? Is that all we're left with? The hope that perhaps over time, pain might lessen? Are we left in the hope purely that, that time will, will deaden the pain somehow and somehow we might get some healing? We might not. What do we do when the pain of life is so bad that it seems to suffocate us? What do we do when the, the pain of life is so intense it hurts to breathe and you don't think you can face another day? Where do you get your strength to carry on? Where do you get your strength to face another day? This morning, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Psalms. And we're continuing at Psalm 126, which is a beautiful psalm which we've entitled Praying Through Tears. Over these last few weeks, we've been looking at these psalms, these 15 psalms called the Psalms of the Ascent. These are the psalms, the songs that the Jewish people would sing to each other as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for their religious festivals and feasts. And we've talked about how each of these psalms almost pick up a season in life and give us a, a psalm to sing through the various seasons of life. Well, this season of life that we find here in Psalm 126 is not so good. It is a season of, of barrenness, of tears, and of weeping of the people of Israel. But there's a beautiful strength and a beautiful hope that the psalmist pen in the words. And it's a hope that we're going to unpack together this morning. As we read the verses in Psalm 126 together, I just want to, I just want to give you a brief outline because... You'll look at the verses at the beginning and you think, this isn't a psalm about sorrow. And you're, you're right. The psalm is seemingly split into two. There's a, the, first, the, the first part of the psalm is three verses where the psalmist reflect back on God's glory and what God has done. And the th second three verses bring us into the here and now of, of when the psalm was written. It was written in a time of pain and sorrow and barrenness. And we're going to work, as we, as we look this together, we're going to see how these, these actually weave together really beautiful, beautifully 
to give us hope, to give us strength. Psalm 126 then, Song of the Ascents. When the Lord Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Yahweh has done great things for them. Yes, Yahweh has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Yahweh, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Oh, didn't pump. Didn't move that on. When was the psalm written? Well, we don't know exactly who penned the psalm. We don't know exactly when it was written. But scholars generally believe that the psalm was written following the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. The very first line of the psalm actually gives it away. The literal translation of the Hebrew is when Yahweh turned the turning. When the turn the turning is, is, is a phrase that was often used to express the exiles returning to Jerusalem. In fact, if people are reading a Bible other than the NIV translation, many of them will have translated that first verse, that first line, when Yahweh restored the exiles to Zion. It's, it's a concept of, 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 of people who were blessed, then going through hardship and then turning back to blessing again. But it was written at a time not of great joy, but it was written at a time of hardship. And actually, when you look at the Bible and you read through the books written around that area where the exiles returned, you read through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, you see the great difficulties that these exiles faced when they returned. You, saw, you see how they are attacked or uh, undermined by the people around. You see the difficulty that they had in rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. You see how they, they slaved away at this, this land that laid barren for 70 years and the land gave nothing back to them. And they're crying out to God. How? But the first part of this psalm looks as if it's going to be a psalm of praise, doesn't it? A whole half of the psalm is dedicated to remembering Yahweh and what he has done. How he restored the people from exile to Jerusalem. How he brought the exiles back. And they were like people who dreamed. People who had to pinch themselves to believe that this was real. Last year when we traveled through the panorama series that Mel was talking about, we spent a fair chunk through the middle of the year looking at the, the chapters of kingdoms and captivity, describing exactly what was going on at this time. 
We learned about how God formed this nation of Israel and then how after the, the death of, of King David and then Solomon, the, the nation was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And we, and we journeyed through this, this spiritual decline that took place in this nation as king after king sort of walked away from God. Occasionally there was a good king, but on the whole there was a spiritual decline as people forgot about Yahweh and took up the gods of the peoples around them. Until finally God said, enough. And through his prophets, he declared to them that I'm going to bring a nation through who are going to sweep you clean. I'm going to bring a nation that is going to come through and it's going to destroy the walls of Jerusalem and destroy my temple and it's going to carry you off in exile. And true to his word, that is exactly what happened when Babylon came and wave after wave after wave, Babylon destroyed the nation and carried them off into a distant land in exile. But God had also prophesied quite remarkably, quite astoundingly through the prophets that this captivity was not going to last forever. He said it was going to last 70 years. And he even named the king, the foreign king that he was going to use to restore Israel again. God had the audaciousness to to declare through his prophets that it was going to be King Cyrus who was going to restore his people to Jerusalem. And you know what? 70 years later, 70 years later, when the Persians had conquered the Babylonians, we read in Ezra, in the first year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Yahweh moved in his heart to declare to the people. Yahweh used this foreign king, worked through this foreign king to declare to the people, Yahweh has given me this kingdom, and Yahweh has asked me, king of Persia, to restore Jerusalem, to restore his temple in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to send back his people. His people from all this nation can gather and go back, and they're not going to go back empty-handed They will have gold and silver with them. They will go with my blessing, with my protection. There will be be materials given to them to rebuild to the name of Yahweh. Paraphrased, Paraphrased by me, but spoken by this foreign king. And you can read the words in the beginning of Ezra. Outstanding. Outstanding display of God's power and his faithfulness. An outstanding display of the power and faithfulness of Yahweh our God. No wonder the people felt as if they were dreaming. As I think in my limited knowledge of history... I can think of no other nation in which this has happened to. There may be a history buff who can prove me wrong, but I don't think there has ever been a nation 
who has been removed from their homeland, taken into exile into a foreign land completely for 70 years, and then restored. This was an amazing work, an amazing display of the power and faithfulness of Yahweh, the true God. And the people of Israel remembered that. They remember his action. And say, so we felt like we were dreaming. Over this last week, I've been trying to think, actually, what it would have been like to have been a, a child of Israel then, heading back. It talks about singing of songs of joy and celebration and things like that. And then I think to myself, well, what would it have been like? And when I think of, of joy and celebration, I must confess I am a shallow man because my thoughts immediately went to a number of significant sporting moments in history where we've, we, 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 we're celebrated together. And then I thought to myself, man, that doesn't even come close to what these guys would have felt. When have we, in our modern era, experienced such national joy and celebration over, over, over an event? And as I thought back, I thought, well, actually, most probably it would be the end of World War II, where globally nations came together. People just stopped what they were doing to celebrate on the streets the end of the war. Six wars of Death, six years of, of, of death, destruction, uncertainty had come to an end. And, 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 and I started flicking through these, all these photos. And you look back at the photos then of those people celebrating on, on the streets, and they're fantastic. I've actually got a few of them just here today. Uh, but just to, just to sort of show the, 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 the joy and the celebration that I think uh, about the closest that we would have got to the, the children of Israel as they headed back out of exile. These guys here celebrating V-Day, the war is, is over. The celebrations were worldwide, you know, uh, the, the, the people just gathered in, in public meeting places to, to celebrate together the end of the world, the war ends. No more death, our loved ones are coming home. There was dancing on the streets across the world, from the streets there in Australia where uh, the the, the, the dancing to, to the streets in, in Dundee in Scotland where they did the Scottish, um, what is it, twirl? No, it's not a twirl. Fling or something like that. Yeah, they, they celebrated with a fling on the streets, absolutely. And what better way to celebrate? Hey, their loved ones were coming home. The war was over. And I think that that's most probably the closest that we've ever come in our modern era to the sort of celebration that was going on in the hearts of the Jews as they returned to Jerusalem at that time. But for them, it was even greater. It wasn't six years. It was 70 years of captivity they've had. For most of the people returning to Jerusalem, stories of Jerusalem were just that, stories handed down from their, their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents because 70 years had passed. And they were returning home. No wonder the psalmist here writes, we were like 
people in a dream. We were filled with laughter and sang for joy. Oh, remember the day that Yahweh brought us home. And the nations said, what amazing things Yahweh has done for them. Yes. What amazing things Yahweh has done for us. What joy. You might be thinking to yourself, you're right, this is sounding like a psalm of praise, isn't it? This first stanza of the psalm is all about focusing on God and what he has done, focusing on his provision in the past, just, just bathing in the joy of what he has done previously. But I think the psalmist teaches us a very valuable lesson. And the the lesson is that when life is really hard, and when life just does not make sense, when life has sucked the life out of us literally, and it's so painful to continue, we've got to return to our rock. We've got to return to our firm foundation. We've got to return to the solid rock on which we base our our life. For the people in Israel, they looked back at God's provision, how how God worked, how Yahweh worked to bring them back from exile, how how he made the impossible possible, how he had done great things, how he how they had heard that echoed from the voices around them and the nations around that Yahweh has done great things. And they're filled with joy. And for us too, that's exactly where we've got to start when life falls apart. And the pain that life serves us, we have to return to our stronghold. We have to return to our rock. We're not very good at recalling the things that God has done for us. We've had it again and again in the Psalms as we've been looking at them. And I've been thinking to myself as, as we go through the Psalms, man, these Psalms are so good at, at recalling times. We're so poor, aren't we? At pausing to think about how God has blessed us greatly, how God has brought us so far, the things that he has done. But you know what? The one thing that we can always remember, the one thing we can always account on is recalling what he has done and restoring us to himself and calling us his loved children. There is no greater display of the awesome power and faithfulness of God and that he's loved us and that he's redeemed us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has restored us into a right relationship. He has made the impossible possible. There is no way we deserve to stand in his presence. There is no way that we deserve to be children of God. There is no way that we could have worked our way back to him. But he has made the impossible possible. And we can stand firm in that sure foundation. 
Yahweh has done great things for us. We read that we are children of God, but not only children, heirs. Get a load of that. You are an heir of God Almighty. Co-heirs with Christ. Oh, what wonderful things our God has done. What wonderful firm foundation we can build our life on. And as we stop and as we reflect, we remember that joy and that certainty. And this psalm written in tears, this psalm written in turmoil, spends half of the psalm just doing that. And it teaches us we need to look back. When life hurts, remember. Remember God. Remember his mighty works. Remember who you are. Dearly loved. And hold on to God. I've shared before about some of the, the, the struggles that I've faced in my life, and I see this principle come out through them. I've shared before with you how my life was, was uh, turned upside down at the age of 16. When my father was killed as we holidayed together, And as a 16-year-old, as a teenager, nothing made sense. Nothing. And the pain was so bad. My father was a godly man. He was an elder in the church. He was a wise man that people would come to. He was a community businessman, well-known for his faith. Everyone knew about his walk with God. So why take him? Why end his life so early? Why shatter our family? Nothing makes sense. And I remember the, the tears that uh, wet the pillow as I struggled to come to terms with it. But it was in that time that I realized just this truth that I had to return to my stronghold. I had to return to the God upon which I built my life. My, my life was being built. I had to return to the rock. I had to return to the one who loved me dearly and called me his child. And I had to say to God, God, I may not know what is going on in life at the moment, but I know you. And that is enough. When life hurts, remember God. Remember how precious you are, that you're a child of God. Hold on to him. Second part of the psalm then returns us to where they are at the moment. 
says, restore our fortunes, O Yahweh. We've remembered what they were like. Restore our fortunes, O Yahweh, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying the sheaves with them. Now they bring their tears, their barrenness, their weeping before God. Some of the, some of the word pictures that he uses here is absolutely beautiful. The Negev is a desert land in the southern part of Israel. It's a land where for months on end, there is no rain. The sun beats dry and hard, and it soaks up the moisture. And you look at the land in that time, and you just see dry, desert, barrenness, and you think there is no life. There is no hope for this land. But during the rainy seasons, when the monsoons return to the north of Israel, the streams come back and they rise again. And again, the streams flow through the valleys of the Negev. And the valleys are watered. And where there was once dryness and barrenness, life pops up from the ground, and you see grass grow, you see vegetation, you see flowers burst forth in these valleys that were once dry. And, and the psalmist is crying out to God, restore us like that, O God. We are barren. We feel as if life has just been sucked out of us. But we bring it to you, and we know that you are the one who can bring life. You are the one who can bring streams of life back to this barren life I'm in at the moment. Restore us, O Yahweh. Turn our tears to joy again. Our weeping to songs of joy. You see, when they brought their barrenness, their, their, their weeping and, and their tears to God, they didn't just leave them there. They used them to look forward to a better time when Yahweh was going to restore them, when Yahweh would wipe the tears clean. I love the Bible. I love the Bible because it is so, well, because it's God's word, obviously. But I love how the Bible is so openly honest about the pain of living in this world ravaged by sin. And when you look at, when you look at the Bible from, from Genesis right through to, to Revelations, you see tears, you see weeping. You see the effects of the pain. One of the greatest weepers in the Bible, paradoxically, was most probably one of the, the greatest warriors, King David. The guy before whom the woman of, 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 of Jerusalem danced and said, Saul has, king, has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This warrior king, David, Yet he was a man after God's own heart. He was a weeper. And when you read the Psalms, which are his prayers, they are filled with tears before God. Sometimes you think you could actually just squeeze the pages of the Psalms and you'd see tears drip out. 
one of the most beautiful verses about tears is actually this one here. In Samuel, in Samuel, David and his men return to home and find that their homes are no more. Been raided, their wives, their children have been carried off, the houses, village destroyed. And it says, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. I tell you what, those of you who have lost a dear one, those of you who have gone through that pain will know exactly what that feels like, don't you? When you cry, when you weep, until you've got no strength left to weep, when, you, when you've cried all your, your, your tears out and there's nothing left to cry. The Bible doesn't shy away from the pain of this world. But the Bible also makes it clear that our tears are actually precious to God, that God hurts when we hurt. The, psalm, the psalmist David writes in Psalm 56 how God collects his tears together in a bottle. Isn't that a beautiful image? The tears that fall from you are collected by God and treasured because he weeps when he sees the pain of sin in this world. We only have to look at his son Jesus Christ to see that, don't we? But there's something beautiful about those tears. There's something beautiful that brings healing when those tears are cried before God. Don't know whether many of you guys know this guy here, Gregory of Nyssa. Quick show of hands. Yeah, right. Oh, no, not, not many of us do. Gregory of Nyssa is most probably one of the most, uh, is one of the important church forefathers. He was one of the, um, he's, he's not so well known as his brother, Basil the Great. Perhaps that might ring a few bells with a few people. But um, Gregory of Nyssa and his brother Basil and another Gregory were, were, were very key players in the early church and in early church doctrine. Uh, they were very key in putting together the, the Creed of Nice, Nicene and things like that and, and laying down a lot of their early church theology. But Gregory of Nyssa has this beautiful quote. It's a quote I love. And it says this, Tears are like blood and the wounds of the song. Why I love this quote is because I think it is actually very, very deep and very true. If you think about what happens when we injure our physical body, we get a wound and we bleed, right? Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, you're on the same page. So, so blood is a sign of the wound, isn't it? Correct? Blood is, and, 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 and so in one essence, this is saying just that. Like blood is a sign of a wounded body, so tears are the sign of a wounded soul. But actually, it goes even deeper than that. Because without blood, we wouldn't heal, would we? If there was no blood supply to an area that's injured, no, there's no healing that occurs. And in many ways, 
Cares are like that for the soul as well. In many ways, tears actually bring healing to the soul when those tears are brought before God. Tears are like blood in the wounds of the soul. If we return to Samuel then, return to David weeping until he had no strength left, two verses later, what do we find? David found strength in what? In himself. David was able to look inside himself and found the strength to carry on through the pain. No. But David found strength in Yahweh is God. And that is where tears before God brings you and an utter dependence. And then he will strengthen us. He will give us the strength to carry on. He will heal those wounds of the soul. Tears brought to God bring healing to the soul. The opposite is true, I think. This guy here, a few more of you will know, Hans Christian Andersen. You'll know the Disney classic on this side, The Little Mermaid. Now, who here has actually read the original Little Mermaid? No? No one's ever read it? We, we read it as a children's story initially thinking, oh, this is going to be nice. The Little Mermaid story is not a nice story. It actually is filled with quite a lot of pain and sorrow and, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. Not like the Disney film. But in the original story, Hans Christian Andersen has this line which I think is very, very insightful and it says, but a mermaid has no tears and therefore she suffers so much more. He acknowledges, he acknowledges the fact that tears are a, a, a way of healing, a tears are a way of working through. But I just want to pause now and actually speak a lot to the blokes here because we are built, we, we're brought up in, in, in a society and where things are said like big boys don't cry or men don't cry, real men don't cry. And that's absolute rubbish. And I think it actually robs us of a lot of healing. I think it actually robs us of intimacy with God because there is nothing so intimate as being raw and open with God and, being, and bringing your tears before God. There is nothing so personal and intimate as crying before God your maker. Saying, God, this hurts. Because it's truthful. I think sometimes, blokes, we miss out.
for us, we need to learn from the people of Israel. We need to cry to God and in our tears say, look, things aren't going so well. We are feeling barren. We're feeling as if life has been sucked out. We're feeling like a desert, as if no life can exist. All we've got is tears and sorrow, and we bring them to God, and God is the one who brings healing. God is the one who will restore. God is the one who will bring life where it is barren. God is the one who will dry the tear and bring joy where tears were. Songs of joy where there was weeping. And it doesn't make sense to us. But we cling on to God. The season will pass. The season will pass. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. That is our future. But God gives it in parts as he ministers to our our souls as we walk through this life now. I don't... Sorry. So when life hurts, the psalm tells us Look back, remind yourself of the works of Yahweh. Remind yourself of who you are. And look forward. Bring your tears, but look forward in the knowledge that he will heal. He will dry your tears and hold on to God. I don't know if if many of you were here few years ago, and I interviewed Kimmery Shearer, uh, who is a young woman who is here, who's currently overseas. But I interviewed her one Sunday morning, asked her to talk about her, her experience with uh, Blair, this young man which uh, she had they had planned to spend their lives together. This young Christian boy who, at the ripe young age of 21, uh, lost his battle with cancer, and God called him home. And I don't, and I don't know if you recall her, her here and, and speaking of, of, of the pain that she was going through. This is something that she said this morning, that, that morning that really stuck with me. She said this, I knew I couldn't do life without God. But life with God was really painful. I just kept holding on to God. You know, that's true, isn't it? And this is what the psalmist is saying. Life is really painful. But you can't do life without God. You can't do life without the rock. You can't do life without knowing your creator. And she just kept holding on to God. And the psalm is saying this to us this morning. When life 
aches. Look back, look forward, and hold on to God. I don't know if many of you get the prayer emails that get sent out. Uh, Marion sends the, the prayer emails out. And I don't know if many of you saw a little paragraph that she wrote this week's email, which I think describes this beautifully. She said this, as, she, as Marion struggles with what is relatively fresh grief and mourning of her, her husband of so many years who, who has, God has called home. She writes this, As I face each day without my darling Vey, my heavenly Father gently brings me back to praising him for the many blessings he has showered upon me. Let's praise him for answers to prayer and trust him for the ongoing needs. She looks back at the security of who she is. She looks back to her God and knows the solid rock upon which her life is built. She looks forward. And God gently restores. So when life hurts, When the pain comes, and it will, remember, look back, look forward, and hold on to God. band are going to return to the stage now and they're going to lead us a couple of songs. The first song, though, they're going to sing as an item and it's a beautiful song called She Waits. This song was written by someone in our congregation as she observed the pain and heartache that someone else was going through. As she observed the, 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 the breakdown of, of this other person's marriage and the, the, the pain that that was causing, she penned these words. She waits. I want you to, to, to think of the words as they sing them. Because I think, again, it just beautifully portrays our response to times of tears. <laughs> 